welcome to the Why We Argue podcast, the Future of Truth edition. This season of the podcast is produced by the Future of Truth, a project based at the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute, which explores what truth is, where it's going, and why it matters for democracy. The project is made possible by generous funding from the University of Connecticut and the Henry Luce Foundation. The podcast features discussions with publicly-minded thinkers about the cultural and political role of concepts like truth, fact, expertise, and information. Today, my guest is Maisha Cherry. Maisha is Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of California at Riverside. Maisha's research focuses on the intersection of moral psychology and social and political philosophy. More specifically, she's interested in the role of emotions and attitudes in public life. You can follow her on Twitter at Maisha Cherry, that is M-Y-I-S-H-A-C-H-E-R-R-Y, all one word. Now, I invited Maisha on the program to talk about anger, rage, and forgiveness, as well as their current political expressions. Hi, Maisha. How are you? I'm doing good. It's so good to talk to you again. <laughs> likewise, likewise. Always. Well, um, so let's start with, with the big picture. Um, you know, you have a forthcoming book with Oxford University Press, and it has a provocative title, uh, which is The Case for Rage, Why Anger is Essential to Anti-Racist Struggle. Um, now, as as you know, and I suspect some listeners will know, um, both uh, in the you know Western tradition and not only the Western tradition of philosophy, uh, but non-Western traditions of philosophy, and also in contemporary philosophy, uh, notable uh, thinkers have argued that anger and rage are almost never morally appropriate. Um, so you reject this view. Um, now, can you tell us a little bit about your overall? Um, would we go so far as to say pro-anger or at least not anti-anger uh, position? Can you just fill out some of the broad sort of philosophical details uh, of your view? Right. So so I think it will help for us to, uh, before we focus on anger, to think about another emotion, right? And, and we're going to see how people treat what we call kind of positive emotions in ways that they don't treat what typically is called negative emotions. So one of the things I like to set up is I, th- I like to think about love. And usually when we say love, you know, we, we think we know what it means, um, but we also know that there's different kinds of love, right? So you can have, you know, kind of brotherly love, you can have erotic love, uh, you can have kind of a, a family love, right? But there's also, um, and we, we think those things are essentially good, right? But there are certain things that you that you can love that one might say, well, if you love these things, it's, it's probably not a, a, something that we should be doing. So if I love hardcore drugs, um, although it's love, it doesn't necessarily suggest or mean, therefore, that what I'm doing is a good thing, right? Because the way that we will evaluate that love is based on what the target of that love is, what are we doing with that love? What is the kind of the aim of that love or the perspective of that love, right? And so if that's the case when it comes to love, I think it also be the same case when it comes to anger. So as much as the, the, the book title is called The Case for Anger, what I want to kind of get us to, to imagine 
is to kind of broaden our view of what anger is. And once we do that, then we can isolate the kind of anger that I'm in defense of, right? So I think there are a variety or, or different types of anger. And particularly, I'm very focused in a context of, of political injustice, particularly in the context of racial injustice. And I want to say that there are different kinds of angers and the way that we can distinguish those angers are kind of the ways in which I set up love is by its target, um, by its action tendency or that action that is most uh, most prone to, to motivate us to engage in the aim of that particular anger and the perspective that informs that particular anger. And once we have the answers to those questions, then we can begin to decide if that anger is useless or if that anger is useful. So I think there's a, a I, particularly the book, I isolate kind of five examples of the different types of anger that can happen or arise in the context of racial injustice. And I kind of attempt to get kind of clever with the, the, with the phrases. Um, so one, one, one example is what we might call rogue rage may sound like road rage, <laughs> but it's called rogue rage. And, and, and typically if you, if you have rogue rage, that rogue rage is usually directed at any and everybody. <laughs> um, right. The aim of it is kind of destructive destruction, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I can go on and on. And then there's another type that's called wipe rage, not white rage. Um, <laughs> and kind of the, the difference between wipe rage is that, it, you know, what the action tendency, what it aims to do is eliminate the other. And usually the target of that anger is usually scapegoats, right? Um, and then we might say that there's something that I call kind of narcissistic rage. So you, you may be angry at racial injustice, but you're only angry at it when it is directly um, about you, when it's concerning you, when it affects you. But when it concerns others, uh, one is apathetic about it. And it also has other features. But the type of anger that I'm motivating in the book is something that I call Lordian rage. And it's named after the poet and scholar Audre Lorde for a very popular essay called The Uses of Anger. And I want to say that kind of anger, Lordian rage, um, its aim is for change is directed at racism and racist and, and racial injustice and racial institutions. The perspective that informs it is that we are not free until we all get free. And the action tendency is to kind of do a kind of productive work to kind of change the world so that, that racial justice can be, can be the norm. And so the, the, the case that I'm making for anger is the case for this Lordian rage. And I think that has a place that has a role to play in anti-racist struggle. Excellent. And so what would you now just isolating on that form of, uh, of, uh, of Lordian rage, um, you know, what, what would you say about, um, you know, some of the, I, I take it even to some of our listeners who aren't philosophers, familiar worries about, about anger as it being a kind of loss of control, um, and that there's something um, impulsive or um, there's something about anger and the, its profile as a psychological phenomenon that um, it, um, uh, it, it, it can't, uh, um, for the person in the throes of the anger, it can't <laughs> sort of fix, fixate on the right target to the right extent. It can't do all those Aristotelian things uh, that the virtuous person can do. Um, so is there is there an element of the view that tries to suggest that that concern that anger is always going to be in some way um, blind and not focused on some particular target? Um, is there some response uh, or do you just think that 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 kind of concern is overblown? 
Yeah, I think it's overblown, but you know, I must admit that uh, I'm using rage to be provocative (laughs) (laughs) Um, because I know just that word itself frightens people. Right. But it points to, I think, I think it points to a deeper worry that even if I was to say anger, if it frightens people, but that's the thing I want to address. Right. Um, So here's the thing. I think all emotions move us in a certain kind of way, can take over us in a certain kind of way. I mean, that's why it's called emotions, right? It has the power to move us. That's just restricted to anger, right? It's just, you know, we might say the same thing about compassion, the same thing about pity and the same thing about love. Like we we all, I mean, that, that kind of sentimentality, those kind of affective dimensions do have a power over us. But here's the thing. I do believe in agency. Right. And I think I think that the, the emotions exist because they're operating in tangent with our own agency. And, and we are, I guess you can say, a tag team of sorts when it comes to emotions. <laughs> so I never think that emotions will cause us to do these things as if we're zombies and we can't help but do anything. Right. Um, that's right. where agency comes into place. Um, and so I, I think w- once you take, uh, you know, emotions, mix it with, with it with the individual, it's up to the individual to decide how they're going to work with, you know, how they're going to team up, how they're going to tag with. And it's not to say that there's no difficulties, but that's when the full agency and discipline and temperance and all that stuff and solidarity with others can help that anger, um, do indeed hit at the right target or hit at the, at the, at the right aim. And it's not to say that those things happen instantly or in, in particular mm-hmm. moments. Um, but I think it's always a process, even in most destructive forms of, of emotions, there's a process before you get there, <laughs> right? There's, right. there's, there's thoughts that you have, there's conversations that you have to yourself, there's planning that happens. And if that's the case, when it comes to those, those emotions that we think are vices, I think it's the same thing when those emotions turns into virtues. That's fabulous. Um, so let me sort of shift gears slightly and just sort of um, uh, present a, a pushback uh, about anger and rage that might come from a slightly different direction. Okay. Now, um, I could imagine uh, that um, those who espouse a kind of anti-anger view, um, especially with respect to the political value of anger, so those who are suspicious uh, of the political value of anger might push back in the following way. They might say um, the wake of the 2020 election, particularly the uh, the events that unfolded in the Capitol on January 6th, perhaps show us uh, where anger and rage will lead politically. Um, so I'm guessing that you've, you know, you've seen some of the clips or at least as much as, as, as you could stomach um, of, the Capitol rioters, um, all of whom seem to be very keen to video themselves committing this gigantic crime, um, you know, sort of screaming into their phones and yelling that um, they're, you know, taking back the country and they've had enough. And this is what, you know, the mainstream media has done to them. You've seen, I'm sure, the footage of the people smashing cameras and all this. Um, so what would you say to a uh, an anti-anger uh, theorist, particularly with respect to the political value of anger, who would say, yeah, well, you know, there was a lot of anger on display uh, in the Capitol. And that's what anger in politics is. It's unrestrained um, uh, um, uh, kind of destructive activity. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of thoughts here. So th- Good. I-, I will have several responses. So one of the responses I will have, if this is the poster child for anger, then it's kind of disrespectful to history. Right. History of the United States of lots of people that have been angry whose anger did not yield those particular results. 
right? So why point to the extremity, the most destructive of all actions and says that represents anger, but don't point to other kinds of movements um, that did not look that way, but was able to be productive and that that was able to transform our nation. So I would say, you know, you're you're, you're taking the easy way out by pointing to the most extreme example. Another thing I would say, I mean, it goes back to to the distinctions that I just made prior, I think, and I'm hoping that this will, what the book would do is that I hope if anything, what it points to is not anger simpliciter, but it will allow people to see the distinct kind of anger that manifested, right? Um, that it will see that, you know, I haven't really thought about this this much since that incident, but one might say, well, that's not anger, that's wipe rage, right, or right. Uh, that's not just simply anger, but that's, that's narcissistic rage, or, or that's rogue rage. And what can we do to make sure um, that whatever the target is, you know, that they think the target is, that they'll recognize that that's not necessarily a target. Like, how can we transform that into a, a more productive one? Um, I will also say um, that when I witness January the 6th, and one might say that I'm just particularly biased because I do work on anger, what I saw was not necessarily the anger, but I saw the power of of, of conspiracy. I found, I, I saw the power of more particularly white resentment and white privilege and white supremacy. I saw, um, the power of politicians to influence a massive amount of people. I mean, that, those are the things that I saw and you mix all of that with emotion. That's what you get on January the 6th, right? So it's not by definition anger as if this is this isolation. And I think, I think this, this point is pointing to, um, one of the arguments that I usually make in reference when people, uh, criticize people who are fighting uh, more explicitly for racial justice, for example, right? So they have a tendency to say, Oh, you are angry. And they don't necessarily look at the cause of that particular anger. And I, I, I have, you know, have a tendency to argue that the cause is a little bit more interesting than the, <laughs> than the anger, because if we address that cause, we probably would not necessarily have the anger. And I want to, I want to use that same kind of argument for the storming of the Capitol, right? Why are these people angry? What has led up to that anger? There's a lot there. And I think that's more interesting, right? And I'm not talking about the the behavior. I want to take, I want to make that a a separate distinction from angry behavior from anger itself, right? And I say that that's because I think the behavior is also interesting, but, but I think that the cause of the anger that's been brewing for years and years and years. That has been kind of a status quo of sorts in, in, in media, through the president's uh, tweets. That's more interesting for us to address. And I think if we remedy that, then we probably would not have seen the, the behavior that was on display. That's fabulous. And, you know, you, you got me thinking, which is always a nice thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, um, I'm wondering if part of what um, uh, part of what you just said about, you know, the you know, looking at those events through not just the lens of, you know, the, 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 the anger or whatever was being expressed by, by the people who were very happy to be in front of telephone, uh, you know, the phone cameras. Um, but the, you know, the, 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 the rally, the riling up the rhetoric that you're not going to have a country unless you fight like hell kind of statements. Um, I'm wondering if, um, the kind of account that you just gave of all of that, isn't in some way um, uh, um, bolstered, <laughs> helped by the fact that you know, one of the really remarkable things th- that struck me uh, as I watched was um, that um, these often the very same individuals who were in one frame, you know, you know, seemingly, you know, seeing red, blind with rage actually get into the chamber of the Senate and then, then they sort of just instantly calm down <laughs> right. and wander around not knowing what to do next. 
the kind of aimless sort of I'm going to take selfies sitting in this room because even though two minutes ago um, I was screaming and yelling about taking the country back and all the rest. But, you know, now that I'm, you know, now that I'm here, I, you know, I, I guess I just chill out and sit down and have a seat. I mean, it right. seemed to me almost uncanny that right. the the emotion kind of did, which might suggest, I guess, that um, the target, the, the you know, this isn't this isn't aimed at injustice or this was this was about um, making a spectacle. And once they had done that and succeeded at getting to where they were supposed to be, they didn't have any other direction. <laughs> right, right. I mean, this is, this, is, this is a perfect description of, of what I call rogue rage, right? Oh, great. Um, and, and one of the things that I, I say in the book is that, that those who, you know, with rogue rage are not looking for new laws to be enacted or policies to be reformed or authorities to listen to their demands, right? Their only aim is to hit back at the world for supposedly hitting at them. Right. Um, oftentimes this is physical violence. Other times it is not. It just happened to be the case on, on January the 6th. It was a combination of several things. Right. And so once you've done that, that's kind of it. And you're probably wondering what else can be done, which is, you know, you contrast that with, with Lordy and Rage. Um, and, and just before I go there, I mean, this is very this is very this was articulated through, through lots of people's kind of testimony. Like, what are you doing when you're seeking to do? Oh, we're still on the Capitol. Oh, we're starting a revolution. I mean, can you yeah. say a little bit more? Right. It was just the hitting back. Um, and that was the extent of their anger. And you contrast that with what I'm calling Lordian rage, where that would be insufficient. <laughs> right, right. 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 That that would be totally, totally insufficient. Um, and, and, and I think I think that points to something dis- important and distinct there. And we can see the problems that can happen when that is the, the, the only aim. Um, right. And so that's what I'm trying to get us to see the, the distinctions, that there's a difference there. And when you have that kind of rage, of course, that's the kind of activities that you're going to be involved in. Whereas if you have another kind of kind of rage that I'm describing, um, there's other aims that you're seeking and that's going to that's going to have an effect on the behavior that you engage in. Good. One last one last uh, uh, further question about this. Um, uh, Again, uh, what one of the things that struck me is watching this unfold on my TV at home um, was um, the impunity. (laughs) Right. <laughs> the, right. the expression like this is we're the people this is my desk i can sit wherever i like mm-hmm. these are somebody else's paper i'll take photos of it oh somebody would somebody would say it's okay to take photos you know ted cruz would say it's okay <laughs> to take photos so right. you know let's just take photos and i thought that that was um one of the respects in which uh the the the, the kind of white privilege that you had mentioned before was really, I mean, unmistakable. The we're storming the Capitol. This is a revolution. And, you know, you also the the early images of the, um, the young lady who had been pepper sprayed and was, you know, (laughs) indignant that she had been pepper sprayed because she's storming the revolution. Don't you know what we're doing? Um, Was that part of the, I mean, the, 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 the way in which the attitude of rage was combined with a kind of, um, um, impunity about the whole thing that there's, you know, that the, 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 there will be no consequences for this because of, you know, this is just what we do. Yeah. There's <laughs> been, there's been, I mean, there's been lots of people who've, who've pointed uh, to the double standard. Um, right. And I, 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 you know, I go a little, I guess you can say kind of meta in, in the book about what this double standard is all about. And, and one of the things that I suggest in one of the chapters is I basically say, listen, it's not just the anger that's a double standard, right? Anger is connected to valuing. 
that when you are angry at something, um, it's an indicator that you value the thing in which you're responding to, right? So, so if someone was to to to, to crash, you know, hit my car, I'm going to express kind of anger. Um, and the reason why my my anger may increase is that I love the car that I have, I value it, and <laughs> the fact that someone messed it up, we're going to have problems, right? And right. so much that if someone was to ball up a random piece of paper in my house, I wouldn't get so angry because I don't value just random piece of paper. So, so, so anger is connected to to valuing. And it's not only the thing that you you value. So if you happy, if you think that you are the victim and you take yourself to have a certain kind of value, um, then you're going to have a certain level of, of anger. And those who are responding to your anger, if they also agree with your, right. with your level of, of valuing, um, then they, they are more apt to suggest that your anger is fitting, right? And they're more prone to just let you do what you do, right? It's kind of a mutual kind of consensus there. And I think the root of that is, I understand that you value your life, and I too also value your life. And that affects my judgment of your, your anger. And moreover, my, my, my judgment of your, your angry behavior, right? right? So much so, I mean, we've, we've seen this in, in, you know, take it back to the, the Kavanaugh case, which, you know, you have Dr. Ford who has to speak very low in a low voice, although she's the victim, um, because right. women are not known, you know, are perceived to not have much value. And so, she, you know, her anger would not be justified in that moment. Contrast that with Kavanaugh, right? Sure. He's sure. coming with this history of like, he's entitled to this. No one's going to get in his way. The Democrats is not going to get in his way. Something that he did years ago is not going to get in his way. And other Republicans agreeing with this value, right? So there's a consensus there about what's appropriate. And, I, and I, you know, you contrast that with Black Lives Matter protests. Um, black lives don't matter in the United States, at least that's the <laughs> overall consensus. And so, so one don't agree with your value, your valuing, your valuation, hence your anger. And so you can see kind of the response to that. So the, the, the double standard, you know, you see the, the white privilege, but what I see there is a deeper root of, of supremacy that is rooted in valuing and our judgment about people's behavior, people's anger, and our, our judgment about their be- behavior is affected. Um, depending on if we agree with that valuation or not. And we clearly see not just a double standard, but I think it, it makes us aware that there are certain people whose lives and who issues matter, and there are other people who don't. And we, right. we've seen that play out January the 6th. That's right. Good. Um, so let's move to, um, you know, we've got a little bit of time left. Let's move to um, uh, this other aspect of moral life or the moral emotional life that you work on, um, which is forgiveness. Um, so we've heard a lot of talk about the need for healing and unity recently. It was a theme of, uh, the latter stages of Joe Biden's, um, campaign and then, uh, was, um, part of his, um, sort of victory speech and then his inauguration speech. Um, but I, you know, I can't recall hearing from anyone, um, uh, on any side of or any position in the political spectrum in the United States, at least recently, can recalling from anybody the idea that healing calls for the recognition of wrongdoing. Um, so there's a lot of talk about healing and and getting over divides and um, unifying the country, um, but not a lot of talk about whether that uh, or any of those uh, aspirations, uh, such as they are, might require some kind of coming to terms with. Um, uh, wrongdoing or something that um, is uh, something in the past that is responsible or that is the cause of uh, the wound that needs healing. Um, so some recent polling, uh, I'm sure you're aware, shows that um, there's still an alarming percentage of Republicans uh, who believe that the 2020 election was not fairly won by Joe Biden. 
Um, so can you just maybe just on your view, like what is the, if, if any, what's the role of sort of coming to terms with the truth <laughs> that, uh, 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 you know, what, what role does that have to play in forgiveness? Is it possible to forgive in the absence of any recognition of, um, uh, the, the events for which forgiveness is necessary or needed? I'm, I'm thinking of two analogies in very different contexts. So we have a psychological example a psychological context, and then we have more of a, a medical context um, dealing with the physical body. So in the psychological context, if you were to go to a psychologist and you say, well, I have this psychological problem, right? Um, let's just say that it doesn't require med- medication and it can be remedied um, mm-hmm. by, by these kind of therapeutic methods. One of the things, I mean, I'm not a psychologist. I mean, the doctor that I have is more of a PhD <laughs> in, in that regard. Um, but one of the things I know is that it's no way that you can fix your problem according to the psychologist, unless we figure out how did you arrive at this problem? Because part of fixing it means that you have to address what led us there, right? right. Whether that's uh, something that you haven't reconciled with the way in which your father treated you, the way in which you, you, know, you can't reconcile with some kind of destructive behavior that you engaged in or what led you to the destructive. I mean, that, 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 has, to be, that has to be taken care of in order to solve your psychological problem. And let's go to the medical context. One of the things we know, I'm not an MD. I'm a PhD. Well, one of the things I do know, if you were to go to the hospital and you, let's just say you were, you were, it's a bullet, you have a bullet wound. No one is going to patch up that, just patch up the, the, the bullet wound. They're going, they have to take the bullet out, right? They have to, you know, I'm going to make stuff here. They have to, you know, put some stuff in there to kind of cleanse it, right? <laughs> right. And then they have to like sew it up. You know, and then it's going to take some time for it to, to, to heal. Like that's that's what and those it's got the psychological, got the medical context. That's how healing begins. Right. right. So what we learn from those two examples that healing requires for us to figure out how did we get here and make sure that we stop the destruction that led us here so that we can go forward. And in the medical context, we learn that we can't go forward unless we get that thing that's destroying us out of us. Then we have to cleanse it of all impurities. And then once we have to engage in the actual activity of sewing up the womb, and then we have to, it takes time for that to heal. And I think there are lessons in that. I mean, we, we, we like to say, oh, all we have to do is be unified. Let's get some healing. Let's forgive. That's too instant. I think that that's just too instant. That's not the way that healing happens. In order for for our nation to heal, and this is just a kind of a quick kind of suggestion here, a, a way for our nation to heal. First of all, we got to be clear what it needs to be healed from. <laughs> that, that's right. uh, that's very important. But it has to reckon, and I think part of that has to do with reckoning with its history. How did we arrive where we are? Right? The rhetoric, the the racism. <laughs> um, how do we arrive where we are? And we need to address that. And what we've learned from a lot of commissions that have a lot of nations that have ushered themselves into a, a kind of a, a new democracy. For example, I'm thinking about South Africa. It wasn't called the South African Reconciliation Committee. It was called the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. You got to reckon with your past. You got to be truthful about how did we get here. And then it requires for you to clean that stuff up. Right. And clean the stuff up is not forgetting it and just act like you can just move on. But cleaning the stuff up means that we clean up, you know, poor areas. And, and what I mean by that is not just a clean. Like, where are the social programs? Right. Where's the equity? Where's the opportunities? Um, we need to stop kind of destructive um, uh, policies that are disenfranchising millions of people. Right. We have to stop that kind of behavior. Once we begin to sow the wounds, we have to give people time to heal. 
right? And 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 you know, it's not going to happen overnight. Um, it's gonna it's gonna take some time. Um, but I think I, I, we and we have to allow people to give people the time to do just that. So as opposed to saying, "Hey, you haven't forgiven," you're 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 getting in the way of of, of reconciliation. Give people time to heal. Um, but I think none of that can happen. We have to do much more work. It's not an instant thing um, just to suggest that once I say I forgave or once I ask for your forgiveness, things will be all good and neat. Um, it's going to be messy. One of the things we know about what a hospital room looked like, and, and <laughs> particularly during this context of COVID-19, right? To get well and to deal with sickness is messy. But unless we're able to really willing to get messy, we cannot be unified and we cannot heal as a nation. Maisha, that was a a, a really fabulous uh, uh, response and um, a, a very nice place to end, except I want to ask one last very quick question. How optimistic are you? Optimistic. I'm not optimistic per se. I would say that, uh, you know, I, I live each and every day believing that with the my own efforts and the efforts of people who are like minded, that we can create something different and something new um, in a place that we can feel safe and, and flourish together and live this life. I'm, opt- um, um, I'm hopeful um, that I'm not living in vain <laughs> um, that, <laughs> and anything that I'm working towards and those who are working in solidarity with me, we're working towards something. And I think that's that, that, that allows life to be worth living. That is as, as, as good a, a, a point to end on Maisha as, as I could imagine. Thank you so much for talking to me today for the new, um, uh, for why we argue. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. I enjoy the conversation. <laughs> You've been listening uh, to the Why We Argue podcast, the Future of Truth edition. Thanks, as always, to our podcast team, Toby Napolitano at the University of California at Merced, handles our sound, Elizabeth Della-Zazera at the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute is our communications coordinator, and Drew Johnson handles research for us at the University of Connecticut. We also want to thank uh, especially uh, Matt Garigula for his creative inspiration. The podcast, I'll repeat, is, rep- is produced by the University of Connecticut's Humanities Institute's The Future of Truth Project with generous funding from both the University of Connecticut and the Henry Luce Foundation. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Bye for now. Thank you.